Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast with your hosts, Mike and Scott. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing pretty good, uh, Mike. Good to be back with you again and uh, continue our discussion about uh, naval aviation in the early 1980s. Yeah, we're going to talk about actual flying now. We're going to talk about actual flying. But before we do that, we got someone, another person. Remember last time someone had... uh, given us an email i have written them back we called them we gave them a shout out on the last episode that was chris so we got another Excellent. one we got another one from uh a drew short for andrew drew says to us that he was a he was an at on super hornets he was in the navy from 2014 to 2018 and he says that a lot of our school and fleet stories are still very relevant to a more recent navy glad to know that he enjoys listening to the podcast when he's driving or riding the bike. And he was in Pensacola in 2014 and says that uh, a lot of things haven't changed from our days, which is really just blows my mind. <laughs> 30, yeah, years, that's kind 30, of 30 plus years later. Um, he says he's been out of the Navy for two years while he's finishing his bachelor's degree. Good job. He plans on getting back to the fleet if he can get a pilot slot through OCS. Good luck to you in that. I hope I hope that comes through for you. He says we should yeah, keep absolutely. we should keep the podcast coming. He enjoys our good chemistry, and and that's thirty five year chemistry because you know Scott and I went through some some stuff together. So there's that's where the bond comes from. But yep. I'm glad I'm glad you can hear it when you listen. Um, he likes our stories, and he says he's very envious of us air crew guys when we were on when he was on deployment because they actually got to leave the boat. And right, and, that was <laughs> that was really a, a treat. To- just to get off the ship and go flying. I mean, uh, it really was. I always enjoyed it. Yeah, I liked flying too. Some, but towards the end of a deployment, it did it did become a little bit of a chore. You know, yeah. it, it uh, you know on a lamp's debt, the days were all the same. You know, right. push, push push the airplane out at seven, fly for five hours, come back for five I found hours. Workups in the HS world to be the most tedious. Because workups on a carrier really kind of aren't so much fun. Yeah, small boy workups, I didn't find that tough. I mean... Well, I think a lot of the time when when uh, you're doing the workups with the small boys, you weren't embarked on the ship. Yeah. I, I, you know, we, like when they're doing their unit level training, they typically didn't have the helo on there. They might come out and fly out, and it wasn't even necessarily your debt that did it. Because I did that with... Uh, you know, ships that were in Pearl Harbor doing ref tray and they need to recertify their deck and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, now the carrier goes out, you go out with it in the HS squadron. Well, um, so. my boat, we did three short cruises. And I don't know if they went out without us in between those cruises or not. I mean, one was from, one was six weeks. It was first of October through the middle of November. Mm-hmm. Then we did one in early December for like a week. And then one in like middle January for two weeks, and then we deployed uh, end of February. So I don't know if they actually, you know, did some other stuff in and out in there. That's pretty know. pretty extensive uh, workup schedule yeah. there that you guys did. It wasn't too bad, you know, because you yeah. went from the six week one was kind of what? <laughs> yeah, that's a what? that's weird. Yeah, but we I went did the same thing. We went to Fleet Week, and then to Hawaii, and then back to San Diego. That's a pretty good deal. A yeah. couple good Liberty ports. So, yes, Andrew, thank you for the email. And, yes, you know, as Aircrew guys, we did skate sometimes too, especially on Home Guard. 
when we weren't deployed. Yeah, we'll keep that. We'll keep that uh, <laughs> amongst friends here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So anyway, yes. Thank you, Andrew. So um, today we're going to start talking about uh, HSL thirty one aircrew training, or the RAG, which is a holdover from pre World War Two. I'm World sure. Two. Yeah. World, replacement re- air group. Replacement air group. And our time was the technical term was fleet replacement squadron. FRS, and we were FRACs, Fleet Replacement Air Crews. Um, and the official course length, I want to say, was like 16 weeks. Yeah, by, by the CANTRAC, which is a catalog of Navy training courses, it was 16 weeks. But in reality, I mean, I was there for six months. So, yeah, same here. Wound up you know, about I, six months. I, I want to say I checked in like first, second, third of October. I mean, I checked in like the very top of the month. Um, I I want to say that there's a secret handshake between the detailer and the uh, folks running the rag that they keep us there a little longer. So they have some schedule fodder because they need somebody to go out to be a sandbag in the back seat. Oh, after we're for, completed. for the FRPs for the, for the replacement pilots. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 To, to go, yeah. yeah. That's what I did for about a month before I left. I flew almost every day. Same here. Which, I wasn't complaining about because all I had to do was show up, fly, and go home. Yeah, there was it was all or back to the barracks. It was all uh, pilot syllabus stuff. Nothing, nothing for us really. I mean, well, we we go out and do the night as we call them the Dopplers. You know, the overwater approach to a hover stuff. Yeah, and uh, pr- occasionally you're lucky, you might get an LSE class, and uh, you know you you go do some rocks and blocks maybe. I, um, but yeah, we'll, we're going to talk about all this stuff so there's just so much stuff for us to talk about when it comes to um our experience in hsl 31 because at this point mike and i uh, as you may recall if you've been listening to us he and i literally graduate reported for boot camp the same day november 17th and we graduated uh and we went through a couple of the class the major courses uh in the uh pipeline air um Naval Air Crewman Candidate School and then A School. And uh, um, we kind of split up only because Mike took leave. I didn't. So he was one class behind me um, for the rest in of SEER it. School, Common Core, and then about a month behind me getting to HSL 31. And uh, uh, I think, as we had mentioned earlier, it was rather, rather anticlimactic graduating from uh, – Common Core, I believe it was, <laughs> it was on a good, Friday. Was like, I'm not mistaken. Don't let the don't let the door hit you. Or we got the next one coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, just fit in with the whole grind. <laughs> so, just a little bit of background. Um, Common Core and Seer School and Rescue Swimmer School literally were within feet of each other. Uh, well, not pretty close together. I mean, two of the schools, same Rescue building, Swimmer yeah. School, in the same same building complex here school was down the road a mile or two now we're going to go down another the other direction towards uh the flight line which is something that you'll hear when you hear folks talk about uh, uh um, military bases and this is where the squadron was located hsl 31 which is, has a, a squadron nickname of the arc archangels was uh HSL 31, which was the Pacific 
fleet replacement squadron for the SH-2F helicopter, as well as the only HH-2 Delta helicopter, which served aboard a oceanographic survey ship. And they also trained the mechanics, and they also operated the uh, helicopter control officer LSE school. So they had a lot going on in this uh, particular command. They used uh, two other buildings, the, the, the main training building where Mike and I went through our classes and the simulator or weapon systems trainer, the sensor WIST. operator trainer. The WIST. Yep, the WIST. And then they actually had another hangar that was the FRAMP hangar, the Fleet Replacement um, Aviation Maintenance Personnel. Where was the FRAMP um, hangar? That was the first hangar on the left when you're coming down from the training building. Ah, walking okay, down the one that was really... Wait. Yeah, that was that was belonged to HSL-31 as well. So that was kind of unoccupied. Uh, yeah, for the most part. I don't think they really... The hangar was mostly storage, and they were using the offices and... Okay, because uh, I did not know that they had classrooms. Because the, HSL 41 was across from that, right? Yeah, they were across the street, exactly. Um, like I said, it was anticlimactic leaving Common Core to move on to HSL 31. I'm sure at some point I had to check in with the duty office, get my orders stamped, and... Um, Go see the senior chief to get a room. Yeah, and it, now it became things became a little bit more um, kind of similar to what you ran into in a fleet squadron, and that they gave you a check-in sheet, and now you have to go check in at multiple locations. You have yeah. to go to medical to get your uh, what we called an up chit. Uh, you go there with your they look at your medical record and make sure everything's correct in there. Give you a real very cursory uh, look over with a flight surgeon. And then they give you the paperwork, which goes into your NATOPS jacket. And that was our record of uh, all of our training, our flight gear issue, uh, et cetera, as well as our our flight logs. You had to go to dental. Um, you know, that make sure you're that was part of the flight physical process. And and then various different departments within the squadron and. Then it was reporting to the training building, which I forget the building number. You'd think I'd remember that after, you know, I spent three years there later on as instructor. But um, the I just, training building. I just know the buildings at our end was 308, 310, 312, 309, 311. Like and 328 or something. I think it was yeah. 328. So you reported to the training building on the second deck and – this is where the classrooms were located. This is where some of the offices were located, all related to the, as well as the operations office. This is where everything related to the pilots and the air crew was located. They also had the uh, the intel locker, secure was space, yeah. where they had all the uh, secure the publications and stuff that were at a secret level. And then they had the ISD library, as we call it. <laughs> Uh, and it had a, a bunch of carols in there with a slide projector. And this is where you did your uh, your ground school, for lack of a better word. You had yeah. different units that you had to complete and different tests. You know, you're jumping through all these different little hoops through the progress of the syllabus. And, 
you know, as Mike has said before, you know, in his earlier podcast, we're going to be trained as sensor operators in the SH2F C Sprite, which nobody ever called it a C Sprite. Nope. We never ever called it a C Sprite. We just called it the H2. We didn't call it an SH2F, any of that stuff. We just called it, we, I, what are you flying? I'm flying an H2, and everybody yeah. knew what that was yep. if you're a Navy, a Navy person. Um, now, these helicopters had a very unique, just to give you some background um, for those of you that are interested in uh, naval aviation as far as the equipment is concerned, it had an interesting evolution in that these helicopters were one of the first production turbine-powered helicopters in the military period and one of the first in the Navy. And it was designed initially with just a single engine, uh, a T-58, General Electric uh, T-58 turboshaft engine with a rescue hoist with a mission where it could fly at a certain speed and go out a certain distance. And they were going to be the primary search and rescue helicopter operated by the Navy off of the carriers. And indeed, later on, there was a helicopter utility squadrons, HU-1, HU-2, on the east and west coast that operated uh, the H-2s in detachments on all the carriers, which at the time we still had the Essex-class carriers. Uh, we still we had the three uh, Midway-class and then, of course, the so-called super carriers that uh, started out with the Forrestal. And from that, the Navy uh, ran into a little snag with this program called the DASH, which is a drone anti-submarine helicopter designed by Gyrodyne that was designed to operate from a destroyer or, or a destroyer escort, as frigates were known before they changed the nomenclature. Basically like a, a radio-controlled airplane. Literally someone stood on the side of the deck with a couple of joysticks operating this thing, and it actually had a single T-58 engine, and it was designed to carry two, at the time, Mark 44 torpedoes. Well, it didn't really work out that well. Uh, it was kind of technology a little bit ahead of its time when you look at uh, all the drone stuff now. This is like ancient stuff. All the stories and I've heard about the dash is they would send it off in a fly, and it would never come back. And it just keep going. <laughs> it would never come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it never come back, or or they lose control of it, you know, and and it was just just didn't work. And the Navy spent a lot of money because they they did uh, what they call Fram modifications to the gearing and Sumner class destroyers, putting a little hangar on there and a little flight deck, and then they actually designed ships specifically the Knox class frigates and the, the Brook class, and I think one other Garcia class with a hangar to and a flight deck. To operate these uh, helicopters, well, uh, these drone helicopters. I think they were QH-55s, if memory serves. I know they were made by Gyrodyne, which was a San Diego company. Um, didn't work. So, without getting too, because I could go on and on with this stuff, <laughs> uh, um, as, as as Mike probably is aware, and he probably could as well. What the the problem with the Navy had is the Russians. Soviet Union, however you want to characterize it, they had a lot of submarines. They had a lot of diesel submarines. So with this proliferation of, of, uh, 
of submarines, the Navy needed something to counter it. And they needed something that could extend the range of the shipboard sonar because the Navy, actually as much money as the Navy invested in hull-mounted sonars and burial depth sonars and whatnot, they really didn't work that well. Not for they not for not that for that passively. It was very successful. Yeah. yeah, not for passively tracking a submarine. Yeah, they were. they're too short, too short range. They need they needed something where they could get out into the at least the first, maybe the second conversion zone, which is a sound propagation path. Where, let's say sixty miles out or so or more, the car the carrier's escort ship. So they needed to go beyond that 60, 30, 60 miles where they could get to these submarines before they would get into missile range. I mean, they had like the Gulf class uh, diesel electric submarine that had the sticks, you know, basically a submarine launch version of the sticks missile, which is a pretty big missile. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cruise missile um, kind of designed as a carrier killer. So they needed something that could get out that far. And then they got the echo two, which was a nuclear powered, um, SSGN with those uh, SSN3, I believe, or two, I forget exactly, um, missiles. And in order to do that, they needed a platform. Well, the other problem that they ran into was money. <laughs> and as Mike can, can echo as well, it, when you're in the, in the helicopter community and naval aviation, you're, you're kind of like the stepchild that's seen and not heard until you go in the water and you need them to come pick you up. Yep. Other than that, they just didn't even want to know we existed, right? Back then anyway. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, they had the HS helicopter, which was like a last-ditch, uh, close-in-range uh, weapon system. I mean, if things got to the point where the HS helicopter off the carrier had to drop a torp, Things had gotten pretty bad to that point, but they needed a close-in defense for the carrier. So they had that. They had the S-2s and the S-3s. I'm sorry, the S-2s early on and the H-3s operating in what's known as CVSGs or carrier anti-submarine groups. Well, all of the ships that were in those CVSGs were all World War II area ships, and they were going to retire them all. So... The Navy looked at uh, all of this and budgeting, and they said, let's see what we can do off the shelf. So in the meantime, the H-2 had gone through an iteration where they put a second engine on it, they put a different rotor system on it, a different tail rotor, and they had all these HH-2Ds sitting around, and they had all these decks that had been decommissioned. Well, what are we going to do with all these helicopters? Because by this time, these things are only like five or six years old. They were... They're all just built like in the early early 60s, and now we're getting into the uh, closing in on the early 70s. So, you know, the Naval War College people and the and the uh, postgraduate school, you know, all these think tanks in the Navy came up with what's known as the Light Airborne Multipurpose System or LAMPS. <laughs> And Mike and I were in what's the uh, original iteration of that, which was Lamps Mark One. And again, it, it came down to money. I'm sorry, Mike. Were you going to say? I something? was just going to say that yes, that Lamps was light airborne multi-purpose system, and we we're trying to think what was the multi-purpose, but it also had another uh, acronym associated with it, which is the Light Airborne Mail and Passenger Service. 
because sometimes that's, right. that's all he did was go get the mail from the carrier, bring it back. And, the, and when they used to do it, uh, my first deployment, the movies. Yeah. When we had a real movie projector yeah. on the mess deck. Um, yeah. So the and they and the the concept was to, as I said earlier, to extend the range of the sensors and weapons from the uh, mother ship or the the platform in which the helicopter operated from. And along those lines, they were going to put equipment on board that could do what we call, well, ASW, anti-submarine warfare, and then ASUW, which was anti-surface yep. warfare. The anti-surface warfare side of the equation was the Harpoon missile. And, you know, we're, we're theoretically supposed to go out kind of almost on a suicide mission um, to, to use these specific tactics of popping up getting a range and bearing and yeah. then dropping back down and then they shoot the missile out. So, and we'll, we'll talk about that more, but, um, and then of course we could carry the, now the Mark 46 torpedo. And then later on different, you know, we got up to the Mark 46 mod five ad cap or advanced capabilities because again, like I could go on talking about this stuff for hours, which, and I'm not going to bore you with all this, <laughs> uh, but, uh, I just want to, to give a background of how did we wind up with this particular platform that yep. Mike and I are going to be uh, going to be operating in, which so which again I had never heard of before I joined the Navy. Yeah, you I know? was uh, completely unfamiliar with the uh, H two. It was a very obscure aircraft. I was familiar so, with the you know everyone's familiar with the Huey right H one, and right. I was familiar with H threes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, H two. And the funny thing is, you know, they, they they had a starring role in Airport 75, but apparently I must have forgot because... But I don't even... Yeah, I saw it, but I just didn't register, right? It did. And and I don't even... I don't think the first time we heard about it, maybe was it was at uh, air, air crew school, maybe? Guys yeah, were talking yeah, about yeah, it or yeah. what have you? Yeah, the the real pitch didn't come till you know, A school, where you yeah, start exactly. hearing about lamps. Yeah. What? Right. What's lamps? Yeah. So... They got this uh, aircraft, and they, you know, the they went did a bunch of engineering studies and and uh, ship capabilities. What do we have to do to modify the ship? Because they had to modify the ships. They had to make the flight decks larger. They had to make the hangar larger. You know, they had to have the appropriate aviation facilities on the ship. As far as the helicopter, they looked at it like, well, we only got a x amount of weight because weight is always important that we can add to this thing and we've only got a certain amount of money so what's out there that we can put on this thing and <laughs> i know you basically <laughs> was kind of in a position where hey we don't have a lot of money you're gonna have to figure out how to what you want in this thing off the shelf so off the shelf without any development asq 81 mad that was easy enough yeah. So they put a mad uh, uh, on there, which is basically uh, like a magnetometer to detect metal, which of course the submarine is made out of. And it's it sa- was it's the same equipment that's on the H three already. Exactly. So they had an off the shelf, and then and then and even at the time, uh, you know, the S three was in development, and then the P three C was around. They all had the same mad. But what's unique about the helicopter mad was. All of that whirling around of the rotors and, and all that kind of stuff, well, that kind of causes some problems with the uh, magnetic field. So 
it's a, uh, what we call a towed body. It had a, a reeling machine, and we'd drag it along behind us. I think it was about 180 feet below yeah. and slightly behind the helicopter. So we had that, and then, uh, well, we need, we're going to be doing anti-surface warfare, so we need some sensors for that. So, well, it, kind of an easy uh, fix for that was the Navy had a radar um, that they used for navigation, um, like all the ships had it. It was just like a small, uh, simple radar. We called it a tuna boat radar because that's kind of what it was. Um, the ships used to use it to navigate in and out of harbors because the, the resolution on this radar, you could, you could see channel buoys, you could see boats, you yeah. know, it was very, a very good, a very, very good radar is as simple as it was, it was an excellent radar, especially if you knew how to operate in, it. In the medium ranges too, right? It wasn't great for super long range. No. You know, it was good for medium ranges, 30, 40 miles. It depended miles, yeah. too on the propagation, prop, you know, what the atmospherics were. Because if the atmospherics were right, you, you could get extended ranges. But And that was some uh, environmental product that we would get um, when we do uh, – certain operations off the ship because it was important for us to know what the radar horizon was. Um, and there's a math formula for that. It's like, uh, I forget right now. It has like one point. <laughs> we, 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 it's uh, not, not important. Yeah. It's they, not they, that they, they, important. <laughs> it's, it, the cobwebs in my brain. I, I just don't remember it off the top of my head, but anyhow. Um, so we got this thing. It's known as the AL, LN 66 Marconi LN 66 HP and the HP, I think that stood for high power, high performance or high power or high right? power. That's yeah. right. High power. That's right. And it was your standard looking radar. Like you'd look at, like you'd see on a tuna boat, you know, it's got the PPI, the 360 degree scan. And it's got the, the hood that you got to put on there, the rubber hood. And it's got a bunch of switches and knobs and stuff to, that you use to make it do different things, which the, the only thing that, the only thing that would not fit in anybody's, preconception of a radar screen is that the crt was not green it was orange yeah it was like old radar was, like world war ii looking it was orange not green yeah yeah and i don't think the technology was that far removed from world war ii um, well you know solid state i know it was, it was it was solid state still it wasn't yeah it wasn't too well no but the you know the first the the original ones and a couple of the ones that were in the squadron you still had to manually tune tune the carrier frequency I had that little meter down there that yeah. you had to tune the carrier frequency they 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 had like a couple of those left when uh mike and i went through and then they fully uh um modified it where you didn't have to do that anymore so we had the radar and then they're like oh okay so we've got a mad and what are we going to do for acoustics well, they could have actually spent the money and put the SDC, the sonar data computer, in there uh, that the H3 had. But, uh, again, it came down to money. And what do we have that we can put in there that will give us some way to approximately localize a submarine? Because that's really what we're in is the localization and attack business. We were yeah. not really so much search, maybe a little bit tracking. And the problem with tracking is – you need a lot of buoys and you need some fuel. So yeah, we yeah. weren't so great for that. Yeah, our we job was our, our job was to to take a P three datum and yeah and uh try to kill itself. Yeah, yeah. So 
they put a buoy launcher in there, which sat behind our seat. And I think we could put, was I think 15, 15 buoys? Is that yeah, right, Mike? 15, three times 15 five. 15 sauna buoys. And we had this thing that they took out of a P2 or an S2, the early ones, that was known as the ASA 26 Bravo recorder group with the RO114 recorder. <laughs> And I, and it's amazing that I, <laughs> I'm spouting all this stuff up, but there there's some things you just will not forget, and and uh, because you know, you're quizzed, you're I, quizzed I, on it, you're quizzed on it constantly. I had a later it. career in the in the actual flying business, and I I dare to say that I was a better AW than I was as an airline pilot. As scary as that sounds, but um, anyhow, we had this ASA 26 recorder group. And it had this R114 recorder, and along with it, we had a AKT22 Victor something or other um, data, link. data link. Yeah. And we had this antenna that we controlled from the our position that we called it the donkey dick. For, you know, <laughs> not so politically correct term there, but that's what we called it. And it had an electric motor to raise and lower it. And what that was designed to do was we would uplink the data via radio signal because every sauna buoy you drop in the water has a little radio transmitter in it, and it would send the signal, and then we would data link that to the ship, which had a thing known as a SQR-17, which is essentially this shipboard version of the AQA-7 recorder that Mike was talking about that has a heated stylus pens on there that would show all of the frequencies because i think we talked about earlier how that's how he would classify a submarine yeah, so yes, yes we also had um but you can only send doppler four, you can only send four 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 buoy signals four back to, at, at four, a time four at a time right um so that was the sensor equipment that we had now we had some other uh, systems on board that uh, we interfaced a little bit with. Uh, we had a ASN-123 tactical navigation computer. And we had a keypad back there, and it had some buttons. So we could do a radar search, and then we could send these contacts, and the pilots would see it on their multifunction display. Or if we got a MAD contact, or if we were doing some hyperbolic fixing with the sauna buoys uh we could we could do that um as well and then i didn't mention we had the ro32 recorder for the mad the magnetic anomaly detecting set and that was the asq81 victor 3 yes um and then we also had um the ability to drop a smoke we are Tech, or the more technical term, the marine location marker. <laughs> MLMs. So, <laughs> MLMs, yeah. So we carried eight of eight Mark 25 marine location markers in, in launchers that basically were right underneath the pilot's seats almost. And they, they uh, had a 15-minute burn time. That's right. And then we also had the Mark 58, which was the big one. That like you opened 40... up like a tuna. The earlier yeah. you opened up like a tuna can. The yeah. later ones, they had a, a tape that you pulled. And they had, they had, and then he had to, the two get to squeeze in like two, uh, like open up yeah, two holes right. to let the water in to activate the smoke. So, um, that's right. the, uh, 
The smoke markers. Oh, and we also had a ALR sixty six, I think it was the, the ESM ESM, and that was operated by the pilots. And then the pilots also had what's known as an on top position indicator, where they could dial in the channel of the buoy, and they'd get a a needle pointing to its direction, and that way we could because without again getting too heavy into this stuff um you got, in order to be able to do a prosecution of a submarine you need to know where you are because it doesn't do any good to say hey this is uh you know copyright zero five and copyright was our call sign and that's what hey there's a submarine here well that's nice where are you yeah so you had to have a plot now in order to have a plot you also have to helicopter has to know where it is so we had a Doppler navigation system for that, where the helicopter, uh, you know, could sense how fast it was moving, and as long as you told it where it started from, it would, you know, it, it would keep track it, of where it's at. It would, yeah, it would keep track of where it's at, and then you could run your plot, either what we call a relative plot or a geo plot. And a geo plot is you're you're basing all your fixes off of a known location, whereas a relative plot might be just a tack in bearing and range or or a grid coordinate something like that um so you know that that's that's basically the this the uh the crib notes uh description of the helicopter it had the two t-58 engines and uh you know a conventional helicopter and it had a four-bladed rotor with a tail rotor but it was unique in one way compared to Every other helicopter in the world, actually, at the time, it was a, it was it, a command. It was a command trademark, actually. All their stuff. Yes, it was. A, it had um, servo flaps instead of using a swash plate. Well, still use a swash and, plate, but the swash plate. Well, they called it an azimuth, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it, the swash plate was a trademark of Sikorsky, so they couldn't Whatever. use that. But yeah. yeah, you're right. It worked the same way. So the swash plate azimuth instead of moving the actual rotors themselves the the blades the pitch right at the hub there were these control rods that went out to little servo uh flaps and and because of that the helicopter was actually as far as for the pilots it was like a sports car and also it allowed it to it had a system that would track the rotor blades so that it actually was a very smooth flying helicopter um, unless it was you, really a unless very you change, nice, very unless you nice changed the rotor blade, and then then it wasn't so smooth for a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you got everything tracked in, <laughs> or 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 you knew a helicopter. Okay, so to troubleshoot blade track, they had a box, a yellow box, right? That would hook up to the ASC equipment, you know, the stabilization equipment. To, um, no, no, it helped hooked up to the uh, the stuff that controlled the blade the, tracks, the blade tracks right? So. Yeah. You knew a helicopter was was perpetually having problems if the blade track troubleshooting box never left the dashboard, right? Because I've seen you'd see that yellow box sitting up there for like three flights yeah. in a row while they try to figure out why the sucker still was shaking so much. Yeah, and they'd have to go out there to the to the control rods and make a turn or two to shorten or lengthen the 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 rod to you know rig the yes. the blade flaps. So yeah, the, the 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 rotor blades rotated freely on their on their on their leading edge axis, Pitch. right? Yep. The, the so the this helicopter is actually flyable without hydraulics because you weren't 
the the control inputs were not moving the whole blade flinging around up there yeah you weren't you weren't fighting all of that centrifugal force you moved you moved a little flap which in turn moved the blade and then how it cut. the 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 control rods were actually very thin compared to yeah. control rods from other from other aircraft yeah they were they they were you know I want to use the word dainty or delicate they were they were pretty uh I mean, you went up there and looked at the azimuth because that was a pre-flight checkpoint. Yeah, I mean, they're right? made out of steel. But they were, they're you know, pretty. they were maybe the thickness of a pencil. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, like a number two pencil, maybe about. Yeah. So you know, it was a. I don't want to throw out the term ingenious, but it was it was a pretty slick setup, and all of all of their helicopters use this thing. Yeah. So, so all their commercially viable ones, I want to say, let's say all the ones they built for other people. So. So that's that's so, that's our airplane. And all that stuff that Scott just told you about is stuff you learn over the course of this. Uh, six, that's right. I'm air quoting 16-week course. And uh, it, was, the, it was somewhat self-paced, right? Yeah, I mean, and this this was actually our first exposure to what it was like to be in a squadron. This was sort of an introduction to squadron life. Yeah. Um, your, your students there, but they put you into a duty section, which we had six section duty so you had duty every six day and and whatnot and and you had to muster in the morning zero seven thirty we used to muster out in front of the the door there right yeah. before the steps you know we'd have yep. one of the little dirt instructors lot. would come out yep and uh do the roll call and then uh it was off to the uh isd library or you know if you're on the flight schedule or you're in the uh the very far end of the hall our <laughs> student lounge, uh, just sort of hanging out and grab ass and with your buddies lounge, and whatnot. The student lounge. Okay, picture a room that's maybe six Small. six to eight feet wide, maybe. Yeah. It was very narrow, and it was probably 20 feet deep, 25 feet deep. Yep, with chairs on either side of it. Yeah, like the cheap – And cheap, a table with cheap, a phone. Cheap Navy couches, yeah, and a table with a phone. Yep. Yeah, the Naga hide couches. <laughs> and the back stairs were right there. Yep. There's a back stairs right there. So Yeah, like uh, a fire escape. So uh one of the 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 duties of a student was you had to take turns answering the phone. Yep. You wouldn't be on the how long was that? A week? A couple days? I'm, how long did we, were were you in that barrel for that? A week, I want to say a week, right? Something like that. Yeah, it was usually the junior class, right? I'm 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 trying to remember if I how many times I actually manned that f- phone desk. Not very, I didn't do it very often. Once or twice. I I mean I have yeah. one I have one memorable experience. The downside to banning that that phone was you were the last dude to leave for the day. Yeah. Right. You know other students, you you'd uh, do whatever you had to study for that day, or you had your wists, you know your your. Um, Sim, your your sim flight, or you're actually at the hangar because you have a flight, or whatever you have going on. But yeah, you had to man it to sixteen thirty, yes. and then the calls automatically went to the duty office. Yeah, so you were there until the very end of the day, and always the last dude out as far as a student, right? Maybe some instructors might be hanging around, but woe be to to the dude who was not there all the way till till sixteen thirty, because you know I I got a call probably 25 past the hour. And, uh, and we had this long phrase we had to say, 
HSL 31 air crew training. This line is not secure. <laughs> this is airman so-and-so speaking. May I help you, sir or ma'am? You had to say all right. that, right? And some dudes prided themselves in spitting that out in half a second. <laughs> and you could barely understand them. And um, so I answer the phone and it's the skipper looking for senior chief carpenter. Oh. Yes, this is this is Captain Johnson. I'm looking for CG. That's right. We had an 06. Then. Yeah. When we first, when I first got there, it was Captain Johnson. He, I, he was there through the Christmas party. I remember him at the Christmas party. Yeah, I flew uh, with him one time. Pretty chill dude, after right? After I'd been, yeah. after I completed this, yeah, he was totally chill. We were just out there like doing autos and you know fan stuff, and he's up there BSing with uh, the department head at the time, who was the co-pilot. Uh, which department? Operations, maintenance. Yeah. Uh, he's kind of a uh, nice guy. I remember he had a mustache. He was kind of, kind of like slender guy. And uh, and the uh, I remember the skipper going, "How you doing back there?" I'm like, "I'm still here, sir." <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, so it's Captain Johnson. Not looking for Senior Chief Carpenter. Oh, sure, sir. Hang on, let me go get him. So I, and Senior Senior Chief Carpenter's office is at the other end of that hall. Yep. You know, yep, so around the corner. Yeah. Actually, I so think. you know, I'm not sauntering. I'm just, you know, zipping down there. Uh, senior chief, uh, captain's on the phone for you. And uh, he made a point to tell senior chief that he liked the way I answered the phone because he could understand what I said. He didn't try to just spool it out in like a half a no, second. No, came Senior chief carpenter came and said, uh, the skipper wanted me to tell you that he liked that he could understand what you said. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, <sighs> yeah, like, so, so your, your, your primary job there was as a student. Um, and like Mike described, you also had uh, the phone watch in the early part. But the entire time that you were there, you were on the hook for duty every sixth day, which meant that you mustered down at the hangar. And they had the uh, an E6 typically. Yeah. Each watch section had an E6 in charge. And you had to, you know, sweep the hangar, empty the trash, you know. And, and then if you didn't have anything else going on that they needed you to do, usually you're done in like half an hour and then you're done. But – you could not leave your what they call in the Navy a recall. So none of it. Of course, this is the concept of a cell phone wasn't even in our minds at that time. Nope. Your recall was the barracks and they would uh, I believe they'd even sent a runner up to your room because I don't even think it, I think we had an intercom. The the yeah. the yeah. newer ones, the the, you know, the yeah. the five story ones where you had a common room with four rooms like 787 and 783, uh, yeah. those barracks had had intercom. So, you you know, the front desk okay. the front desk could call up to your room and, you know. I forget what building I was in later on when they finally – because at this time, I'm still in six, uh, 864. So that was a little more complicated as far as the recall. But you did have to stand on, on occasion what we called a flight line watch, which was really kind of dumb when you think about it. Um, so you showed up and it was, it was a four hour watch and for E3 so and below, this is right? Really, this is really a funny, this is a really funny story here. So um, usually the, it, the squadrons would usually put all of the aircraft in the hangar at night. It was very unusual for one of the aircraft to be out at night. They just would put them in the barn at night. But they still wanted you to um, be out there on the security watch. So you had a belt with a radio and a flashlight and a nightstick. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do, right? Oh, don't forget the and whistle. At this time, I, this is when we had. Don't forget the whistle, too. 
Yep, and a whistle. <laughs> and this is at the time that they had, uh, you know, the SEAL Team 6 and Red Cell doing the shenanigans where they'd like, you know, they were climbing onto the quarter decks of ships and, you know, you're dead. And so they were, you know, saying, hey, you know, this, you never know what can happen out here. So stay sharp, right? So it was really boring. You know, you just prowled around. I think every uh, 15 minutes, 15 minutes or something, you called them and said, yep, I'm over here. You had to tell them where you were at, too. Like, well, I'm out in front of the hangar. I'm I'm over here by the paraloft or what we call the PR shop or, you know, what have you. And that's pretty much you. Here's how I remember it, Scott. Right. So, uh, there was there was four squadrons in the area, HSL 31, 33, 35, and HSL 41, which is a, the rag for the H60. But they were still in. Yeah, and they also had the HC9. Too, but the, HC9 uh, was a reserve squadron. They weren't they weren't standing any any yep. ramp watch, right? Um, and HCL, oh hell no. And HSL 41 was not quite in production yet. I think they were still kind of. Uh, I think they only had one helicopter. The one that was painted up like with all the regular, you know, the full blown gray and white and all that yeah, stuff. One or two, because they they yeah. By, they, by the time I left HSL thirty one, they were starting to fly on a regular. So okay, but anyway, so there's these four squadrons. HC nine doesn't count because they're reserved, and and we're at a corner of the flight line, right? The the street projected into the right angle of two runway areas, so. Yep. The four squadrons had to provide five bodies for the line watch. So HSL 31, since they were the largest, because they were full of students, right? We had maintenance students and aircrew students, um, in addition to the regular cadre of staff, right? Uh, so they provided two, and we had they were Alpha. Uh, Alpha was out by the PR shop, right? Bravo yep. was right there where the road ended next to the HSL-31 quarter deck at that section of the flight line. Charlie was over at the corner of HSL-35, and that's HSL-35's uh, area to watch. Uh, Delta was HSL-33's watch, and that was outside of HC-9's hangar, because that was on the flight line side. And then Echo was HSL-41's, whoever they were, over by their hangar. And so every 15 minutes, Alpha would get on the radio and say, Alpha, all secure. And then Bravo would have to say Bravo yeah, all I secure. Remember, I remember doing that, but you, you, your your memories on that is way better than mine. I mean, that's, <laughs> this my pre Alzheimer's is just like completely blocked that out. So so if you didn't answer, they knew something was up with you, right? Sleeping, right? right? Especially three in the morning, whatever. Um, and and you weren't actually supposed to talk. You weren't supposed to go hang out with the other people, right? You're supposed to watch your area. But I remember once I got into yep. the fleet squadron. Me and the thirty-five, you know, if I had the the, the Delta sec- sector, I walk up to the corner of the Charlie sector. I mean, the HSL thirty-five dude would chat, um, or the HSL forty-one person if they would come. You know, we'd try to, because dude, you you know, you're trying to pass the time from midnight to four in the morning, or four a.m. to eight a.m. watching the sun come up. Yeah. Uh, yep. So that was, but we were we were lucky that we had six section duty because when I got to the fleet squadron, it was down to four section duty. Right, and then and then every sixth so weekend this you is, were watching airplanes. Yeah, yeah, that was no fun. But uh, but what happened? This 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 funny thing that happened. So um, one of the areas we we would patrol around was uh, they had one of those uh, 
I don't know, corrugated uh, metal buildings. Not a very sturdy looking thing, but that was where our aircrew locker room was, where you kept all your <laughs> flight gear, and then they had the the PR shop, PR shop, and the line uh, shack. PR, that's the navy. Yep, and the line shack. That was all in this 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 building. Well, this was probably the very first watch I ever stood doing this. So I can't remember. It was you know obviously in the middle of the night. Well. They had these things in the Navy they called Oscar. Now, the, the reason why they called Oscar is because if a ship has a man overboard, they hoist the Oscar flag. You know, like that way, the, oh, they got a man overboard. Yeah, because Oscar so is short for what o, the ships right? would yeah. periodically. Yep, what the ships would periodically do is they'd toss an Oscar over the side, and the ship would do its thing. You know, they'd do their Williamson turn and come back and, use the J David up on the forecastle to pick the guy up or they'd launch a whale boat or sometimes even in the HS community, we'd, we'd even put a swimmer in the water and go get him. So Oscar's a mannequin. And right. Yeah. We better tell yeah, him Oscar's exactly. a mannequin. Yeah. Yeah. So there was this area around the corner from the line shack where there was like this other little shack. I think it was like a paint locker or something like that. I don't know what it was exactly, but there was between there, they had piled up like two or three of these things. So remember keeping it, it, it this ramp uh, surprisingly compared to like going to an Air Force base. Air Force base, it looks like it's practically daylight. Yeah, it's lit on their right. flight lines. They have these big light towers. I mean, it's lit up big. We're time. not lit. Not this flight. No, no, not this place. I mean, <laughs> there's no lighting. I mean, there may be a spotlight over the hangar, but I don't even remember there one no, being there. I don't remember them it's turning them dark on. Out there. Yeah, no, it's dark. It's moonlight and. Um, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And so I come around the corner and I see one of them is sitting up like they had him just sitting there and in the shadows, it looked like a person sitting there. And uh, I about crapped my pants on that. Did you hit him with the stick? And then I was like, what the? Then I hit it with the flashlight <laughs> and I saw, oh my God. And it's like, uh, it was an Oscar. But uh, yeah, so then, like as Mike said, we got to do the Hilo wash thing, which was kind of drudgery and, and you know you in the hsl 31 you had always had two it was rare that you ever had you know less than two i mean and, and if you had a really bad day it was, it was three. three yes yeah because <laughs> I, the helicopters were on a fort on what, what the navy calls a corrosion control program which is on a calendar schedule so and it's on a 256 day cycle so they do certain things every seven days, every 14 days, 28, 56, and so on. So wash jobs ashore are every 14 days. At sea, they're every seven days. So, yeah, and, and it was not like washing your car either. I mean, you had to do underneath, and you also had to do the oil coolers. And you had to do it in the right order, right? Not the QAO, the QAR would come out. I mean, if yes. there was any water in the bilges, and it, you yes. know, you got the thumbs down, you had to go up and get all that straightened you, out. You, so everyone, okay, so let's paint the picture that uh, uh, a wash day uh, at the rag is probably 30 people. I mean, it, it was a lot of people. Ramp, you know, Framp, yeah. Framp students, yeah, Frack students. Whole, it so, was the whole duty section E4 and below because yeah. the E5s didn't have to do a it. A lot of people. 
And so you're watching the airplanes. Um, we only could only do one at a time for whatever reason. We only one hose or I don't know what. Um, yeah, you're and, right. And then at the end, you know, everyone's given a roll of paper towels and you go and you find every possible place where water can collect inside that airplane. And, you and, and what was even more sop up with is, it is they had the gals from admin out there too, and and this is nothing. Not, I'm not don't for your ladies out there listening. This, don't take this the wrong way. The 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 girls literally like these little yeomen, which is basically like a secretary, and they don't want to get dirty. They don't want to get dirt under their nails, or God heaven forbid, break a nail. So they're just kind of standing around for the most part, kind of like holding a hose or just sort of like goofing off but nobody bothered him so i was like yeah. that was kind of kind of bullshit but you know that's just the way things go right yes um but I, I i noticed that and that irritated me a little bit at the time but uh it was a different time you know so oh yeah it's like uh yeah well she's a yeoman and then they figure out a way hey why don't you go back to your office and they disappear a lot of the time uh their maybe their supervisor said you have some quote unquote paperwork and they would disappear they weren't i mean some cases they were hindrance you know if if they weren't there to work on the airplane and they want to be part of you know because some of these people that's their that's their that's their assignment right they're a yeoman assigned to hsl 31 they have no idea you know that they're in aviation what's that thing they don't care right they're doing their yeoman job and but oh oh well you're e4 and below and you got to come out and help wash airplanes Yep. So it wasn't that bad. I just, I remember one time I did catch a, I no. did catch a three airplane wash day and I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, I, I caught more than one of those. Um, because you have to remember, I came back as an instructor. So now I'm an E5. And then what they would do, oh, you're a plane captain because that's what yeah. you had to have a qual for yes. in order to supervise the wash rack. So it would come around like, oh, it's your turn to supervise the, so I'd be there. You know, I and mean, that was like herding cats because now I'm the one herding all those 30 people out there. Yeah. And I think that's when I was getting irritated with the females with that. Uh, it was more when I was like supervising it in hindsight. So uh, I should also point out that with two airplanes, you're, you're done by lunch because you're showing up at 730 and you watch two airplanes. Yeah. You're, you're out by lunch. It would usually drag longer if you had three because everybody's but, just about had enough. But three airplanes, you're kind of into lunch before you finish so it was no fun all right but don't you think we should kind of talk about uh like the syllabus for us yeah well that's what i'm saying we kind of got the duty section stuff out of the way yeah um so the syllabus is split into two halves because as i said they had the sh2f and they had this A single HH2 Delta, which was assigned to the operate as the one fleet unit uh, that operated from uh, called Det Bravo that operated from the USNS Chauvenet, which was an oceanographic survey ship. But a lot of the stuff was still kind of harkened back to the early utility days when it was HC4, which at at mm. uh, Ream Field, Imperial Beach, before it became HSL 31. Uh, so you went I'm sure it wasn't a C5. I'd like to pick nits, but I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah, it was HC5 right rolled into yeah, 31. Yeah, you're right about that. And HC7 became. Yeah, yeah you're right. So uh, um, you went through an 
initial syllabus, both ground and flight, which was just to get you qualified as what they call a utility crewman. And you had uh, certain lessons that you had to do um, in the ISD. What did ISD stand for? Instructional Systems Development or something? Something like something I like forget. that. It, yeah, it was a. But it was the ISD library. And, uh, you know, you, you got your, you checked out your lesson, you did a workbook and they, and they kind of, it was kind of hokey and a little in the sense that they, they had this cartoonish guy <laughs> that they called Alfred E. Crewman in these workbooks, you know, and it was a little hokey, but I think, you know, I think they're trying to keep people a little bit from not getting too bored, you know, a little chuckle or whatnot. Uh, and you could finish so these lessons in you, like 30 you're minutes le you're learning about the uh, the aircraft overall, you know, the systems in the aircraft that are um, what you're going to be working with at the time, which was pretty all the, you know, the rescue hoist and the cargo hook, um, what you needed to be uh, uh, aware of for doing the pre-flight of the aircraft. Because when you pre-flight the aircraft, that's divided up into um, different sections. And normally the Air crewman would pre-flight the cabin, of course, the nose of the aircraft, and the, the fuselage. And in some cases, at least in my fleet squadron, the, the, the air crewman pre-flighted the tail. I remember doing that at HSL 31, but in the fleet squadron, the air crewman climbed the tail and pre-flighted the tail. What would you say if I told Whereas you the pilots I have my HSL 31 replacement air crewman handbook right here my student guide no kidding that's cool that you saved that you've saved all this stuff mike <laughs> you, you should uh you should get this stuff copied and, and put it online i'd really like to see it uh, okay yeah the first thing is your air crew check-in sheet sorry uh, yeah isd library is listed here as one of your check-in places ah building mm -hmm. building 335 welcome to hsl 335 yes Monday morning report to building 335 for 0730 at 0730 for muster. Uh, and I don't to begin training with indoctrination class at the front training building 251. That was also in the SAR school building, wasn't it? Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's see. Uh, so. Because that's where the uh, HCO LSE, and that's where we went to indoc too. And you're right. It was squadron indoc. Instructional Systems Development. That's why I dug out the book to figure out what ISD meant. I just took a swag at that. I mean, I wasn't. I, I knew it was something. The I was instructional. All right. And so, I was pretty sure the S was system. So forgive my interruption. Continue. It's Instructional Systems Development. You're right. Um, yeah, yeah. So you do your the appropriate lessons. There would be quizzes, and you you know you're checking off. Uh, you got to a certain point where you would have to do a test and to do the test you had to have a proctor who would be one of the instructors he would basically sign out the test sit you down in the carol you do the test he grades it okay move on to the next step so at a certain point um, they took us down there and showed us how to pre-flight the helicopter so you went down there what we call the air crew pocket checklist and so now we're like we're we're thinking we're badass because we got a flight suit on, we got our boots on, we got our Nomex gloves, you know. Uh, um, some of us had gone and paid and got name tags like with the AW, you know, the rating the leather badge on yes, there. Yes, like yes. I had a couple of those, yeah. So 
you know, you're you still smell like mothballs. You know, you're you're obviously greener than than uh, you know a freshly mowed grass as far as being an air crewman. And then, you know, they, they give you the you, you do a tour, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, they show you the PR shop, you know, where the locker room is, you know, all the appropriate stuff up at the squadron. Because at this point, other than if, when you had a duty muster, you weren't really down at the hangar very often, if, if at all, other than maybe, um, you know, curiosity, you know, and it was to me, it was always cool. I always loved the sound and looking up at the flight line and hearing the aircraft, you know, when they're turning and getting ready to go out, it was just uh, it was very exciting for for me at the time because, you know, you're getting you're getting closer and closer to the point where you're going to be in one of those things. So you do the pre-flight and you get that part of it signed off, and um, now you get into the point where you're getting ready to go flying. So the first flight in the syllabus, and, and fortunately, because Mike has his book there, <laughs> uh, was C something C R F is that right? C R F C R F one. Yes. And I actually remember my C R F one really well because one of your buddies and squadron mates uh, was stashed at H S L thirty three on a ca- uh, thirty one. On occasion, uh, they actually had billets for at the time when it was when you had to make petty officer they had billets there for e3s at hsl 31 you know they, they needed some fodder for the schedule so there's a young young fellow there a really nice guy um danny davis ah, and uh danny i think at the time was still an awan but he was qualified as an instructor he'd been there for like a year and he was qualified as an instructor for this initial utility syllabus for doing certain flights, one of which was the CRF-1. And what I what's, what I really remember well about it was, uh, you know, I was kind of familiar with sort of like the basics with flying because at the time I already had my commercial pilot certificate and my instrument rating. So, you know, I was familiar basically, but I was still sort of like looking through a toilet tube in as far as situation awareness as to what's going on. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it was learning how to do like how to do a hoist check, how to check in, how to use the the ICS and all these things. And we took off and I remember where we took off and we headed over uh, what we call the channel there in North Island. And we're going to go down to um, actually we're going to go to Brown Field for what we're going to the pilot was going to be basically pilot fan work. So we're just sitting back there uh, in the back and we actually got a chip light. Here I am, the very first flight, and 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 I'm kind of trying to figure out what's going on. You know, we got a, you know, master caution and a chip light, and you know, I get out and I watch Danny, you know, shut down, doing the stuff that you got to do about the droop stops and and whatnot, and and then we just kind of sat there waiting for uh, another helicopter to fly in with some maintenance guys, and um, I'm figuring they got us. We either flew back with them. I forget exactly what how how that wound up. I think we wound up f- turning back up and flying back or something. Um, kind of fuzzy there, but so that's the that's the CRF one, and I guess we did enough to sign that off. And the next step is um, what we called rocks and blocks. CRF two, and these were the CRH flights, and I think there was. 
three of those, maybe? Uh, two? Hook and I Hoist. Maybe. All right, so, so let me hook look. Hook and Hoist, yeah, Hook and Hoist. So there was actually a CRF-2 flight on the syllabus. You got you got two FAMs. Oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah, I'm sure I did another one. I just okay. don't remember it. Yeah, I don't remember it either. But CRH, yeah, CRH, Hook and Hoist. There was one, yep. two, now, on the, three the, CRH flights. The third one being optional because that's the high for one. Now, the CRH flights, this is when you went out with three guys and an instructor. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes two, but typically it's three. And my, Mine was you're, two. You're I'm going to go down. I, I remember. Yeah, maybe it was two. And it was, I actually went with three one time because it was – I remember going with uh, Bill Martini and Dave Haddock and – Maybe it was Carl Brown. I forget exactly who was who. I I know one of them was Dave Haddock for sure, and my, maybe it was Bill. Mine, my CRH flight uh, buddy was George Poston. Okay, I had Hadley for as the instructor on one of those. So did I. Don't I. Remember the uh, Hadley was and I have, uh, I have a picture somewhere that Gordon Perman took at the pad of. Oh yeah, I've seen that picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Poston's doing LSE, Hadley's behind him, and I'm underneath hooking him up. Yep. So this is kind of like now you're really you're kind of going from the shallow end of the pool into more the deeper end of the pool. And yeah. we used Imperial Beach, N-O-N-O-L-F, Navy Outlying Field, uh, Imperial Beach. It had been NAS, but it got downgraded because – they moved all the squadrons up to um, North Island, but the Navy retained it to use it as an outlying field for helicopter training primarily. It still had a runway, I mean, mainly used by helicopters. Uh, it had, was a towered field, and the other major function was they built a huge, huge commissary down there because there was a ton of Navy people that Retired. lived in the South Bay. There's a Navy housing area and whatnot. So... The idea was to go down there and familiarize you with how to use the rescue hoist and using uh, voice direction on the ICS, and then also to do vertical replenishment. And vertical replenishment is using a pendant hooked up to uh, a big block of uh, concrete and hook it up to the bottom of the helicopter, and then the pilots fly around. And now the other, the next thing you're going to learn to do is landing signalman and listen so you're going to use hand signals god i'm, I'm sitting here using hand signals while i'm sitting <laughs> in my chair um, you're, you're going to direct the helicopter over the spot and uh you know direct them to put the cargo down but before you do that they actually just have you moving the helicopter around and and as i remember they, they, you have a spine on your SV2, your survival vest, and, and they're kind of like, you know, if you're not doing it right, they're kind of guiding you around, and, you know, they don't want you flapping your arms like a bird when you're doing the different stuff. So, yes. you know, they want you to be very <laughs> precise and very crisp on how you did your your hand signaling and, uh, and whatnot. So I didn't have any problems with that at all because I'd worked for an airline, and I'd been doing all that on an ramp before. So that was kind of natural. You know, I actually had a lot of benefit from previous aviation experience going into this. So that was good. But I played dumb. You know, I didn't mention any of this stuff. I just uh, did what they told me to. And you, the other thing that you learned to do, like I said, is the hoisting. Now, the hoisting was unique in the H2 in that you could have a mode where you lose 
your inner communication system or your ICS, you know, you, 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 they simulate that. And then you, you're literally, there's a bulkhead and behind that bulkhead is the pilot seat. And in a helicopter, the aircraft commander is sits in the right seat. And that's the side that the rescue hoist is on. So you tap on his shoulder, tap on your mic and you give him a thumbs down. And that tells him that you don't have any ICS. And then you put your hand, you basically grab a little bit of flight suit and then you're dragging him around using, you know, forward and back, you know, pulling his shoulder left and right, up and down and whatnot too. And then there was different taps to let him know when you're hooked up and when weight's coming on. Yep. And then when you close the door, that tells him, okay, I'm cleared for forward flight. Um, other than that, you're using voice commands like easy, you know, easy forward, easy left, easy right, and you're giving them a distance and feet. Hoist going down. Yeah, you got, good yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're kind of giving him like a, a rolling uh, narrative of what's going on because they can't see at all. They're, they're either watching their Doppler indication, their crosshairs over water to maintain a hover. Or they're looking at a reference point, but for on the, the horizon, most part, yeah. on the horizon, they're, they're, yeah, they're they're uh, looking at the um, their uh, their hover. I forget the deviation velocity indicators, like crosshairs, um, and they're listening to your your voice communications. You know, giving them a status on what's going on. So you do a couple of those flights, and the next part is kind of like the fun part. I thought. Now we're going to get to jump in the water and hoist each other. So, you know, of course, we, every flight begins two hours prior to um, well, brief, brief begins taxi time. Yes, pr two hours prior to startup or yeah, taxi and, time. And the briefing process consisted of going to a ready, what we call a ready room in the Navy. And in the ready room, they had the as you may have seen in movies, the the big leather uh, chairs that recline, they got the pull out. They're just like in World War II, the same exact design. Uh, they have a pull out desk. They, these things are heavy duty too. I wouldn't want to drop one of them on my foot. Um, got a drawer underneath it, pretty comfortable. And they got a board up there, you know, uh, the flight board. And then the squadron duty officer comes in and briefs all the crews that are on that event. And an event is like at 0700, like three crews will brief or event one on the schedule. So he'll brief that, he'll brief the weather, he'll brief uh, aircraft status, things like that. You know, you're assigned to this aircraft, you know, this is the weather today, blah, blah, blah. Any quiet hours, uh, you know, or they're not going to, the base is going to shut down because there's a retirement ceremony, things like that. <laughs> Once that's done, then you're going to break down to a separate crew brief of which the aircraft commander, or in our case, a lot of times the student would brief. And that's specific to what you're going to do for your mission. And then there was a bunch of general boilerplate items that were covered. Uh, and we always laughed about, though, I think one of them was naval intelligence. You know, he's always kind of oxymoron there. And the, the next step was to go down to um well you would brief with your instructor and then the next step was to go down to the maintenance control and get the um what we call the adb or aircraft discrepancy book 
and the aircraft discrepancy book had all of the write-ups from was was it the previous 10 flights mike isn't that what it was uh previous 10 flights and anything that was not not signed off not not completed but not downing right yeah exactly exactly so and they were different colors like the red ones were the ones that were not uh signed off but they were not uh, as mike said they were not a downing discrepancy and then there was uh different configurations that the aircraft could be in those were more or less for the pilots for weight and balance purposes and then they had a thing called a yellow sheet and that in pencil you put your name and your laundry number there and your rate your laundry number um, <laughs> Yeah, your your social security number. Your laundry number. That's what my company commander at boot camp call it. Yeah, your laundry number. <laughs> okay. So you did that and the next step is to go to the locker room and collect your gear. So initially, uh you had your SPH three helmet. Still which got mine. was a helicopter helmet that had extra noise uh attenuation. It had a microphone on it and a pigtail to hook it into the aircraft and then you had your sv2 survival vest which had your flotation it had a couple couple of pockets with different types of survival uh things in it like your uh signal mirror and uh you know fishing kit you know stuff like that i still have that um, too a couple of bottles little bottles of water you had some a sea dye marker on one side and you had two mark 13 flares on these little pouches that hung on the sides um, so you checked all that stuff out, uh, or you got that stuff out of your locker. Um, and then you went to the PR shop and you had to check out the rafts and a SAR bag. Yep. Um, so the rafts were single man LR one. So you, you pre-flight those and then you pre-flight the SAR bag and that has your, um, your different, different equipment that you'd need for a rescue. Um, horse collar, glove. Yeah, uh, the splice, collar, the splice hook splice. thing, you know that splice. Yeah, the that, quick splice. Um, the pneumatic webbing cutter. Yeah. Uh, let's. What else was in there? The gunner's belts. Usually had three yes. of those. Yes. Um, those rafts. First aid. Yeah. Those rafts weighed twenty-seven pounds first each. First So yep. it's a hundred-pound bag. So I had just various <laughs> stuff in there, and then you had to schlep all that stuff out to the helicopter set it up in the helicopter, rig all the gunner's belts, pre-flight the cabin, then it's time to get out, and then you do your walk-around inspection. Well, that's kind of what we call it at the airline, but in the air, in the Navy pre, in the Navy parlance, it was you're going to do your pre-flight. Uh, so the and, first step and after you... Some aspects... Oh, sorry. I was saying to say some aspects of the pre-flight are designed where everybody flying looks looks at a particular spot, Right. And then there's some aspects where everyone has their own responsibility. Does that make sense? Right. Yep. Absolutely. So, so the important stuff, you know, multiple pairs of eyes looked at it and the, you know, the stuff that would kill you and the stuff that would just make your flight interesting and, you know, not completely ruin your day. They trusted just one person to look at it. So the, uh, on the bottom of the helicopter, um, the, the most important thing for us in the uh, on the bottom was, you know, of course, the landing gear and the tires and things like that. Um, if you had any smokes to pull the pins for the smokes and then opening up the nose and there's and, and 
checking all the avionics in there, make sure all your cannon plugs are connected, the battery is connected and spot tied. Different cat, the date is with. There's a lot of things, but we had a checklist. So you followed your pocket checklist. That's one of the things that they were emphasizing. Do you still have yours? Um, that you use. Yeah, I've got it around somewhere. I've, I have my last natops too. Me too. Um, but yeah, I do have that stuff. Um, I got a uh, weapons loading manual. I've got um, a few other things H2 related. Um, and and then you go around the bottom. We like, like I said, we didn't climb the tail rotor there. One of the pilots would do that. In the fleet, we did it, but uh, you know they they didn't quite trust us yet. And the fleet squadron is a little different. Especially after you built up a reputation, oh, and that's or, one of the important things about the you, air crew job. Yeah, I would say, or you qualified as plane captain, right? Yeah, or plane captain. That, and that's probably why they trusted us to do it. But is is building a reputation of trust because you know the pilots trusted us and and we trusted them. It's, it just had to work that way because you know they couldn't do their job without us and vice versa. And, and there was definitely a, a level of trust. I mean, some people are a little like a little maybe kept a little more of an eye on. But generally speaking, um, at that point in time, I kind of thought most of these guys walked on water. But later on, I kind of realized they didn't. But anyhow, uh, everybody kind of approaches things <laughs> with a little a little bit of naivety and uh, innocence. So get all that done. And now it's time to uh, strap in and go. So. Before I get back, before I get on with that, is we're back to doing our overwater stuff. Um, so in this case, we're not going to pick out an SV2. We're going to go put on our wet gear, which we had just been issued from Rescue Swimmer School not too long before that. Um, and as I think we've talked about, and that's going to consist of at the time that I think I did, I wore a full wetsuit. Well, okay. Uh, um, so let's. Yeah, I definitely didn't wear the. Sh Maybe I wore shorty. No, bottoms. there's no way. I can't remember. Cause, cause I think I wore full wetsuit. Dig this. Cause you'd have froze. You'd have froze. I have a PDF copy of my first flight schedule. No, let me rephrase that. I have a PDF copy of the flight schedule I first appeared on my very first flight in H two. I have the HSL thirty one oh. flight schedule for that day. Am I on there anywhere? You are. So my first flight oh, in H two. My Send me that. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> My first flight in H2 was on Tuesday, October 18th, 1983. Three of us had our CRF-1s that day. Myself, Lopez, and Russ Miller. Oh, yeah, Lopez. He was a good guy, too. So our we had 6.30 briefs with 8.30 launches. Uh, let me scroll down. Heaven. And I flew... Uh, so... Uh, Commander Boyer and Brown were the pilots. Chief Gentile was my instructor. Um, and I, I want to say we started with a, a post-FCF um, uh, autos because this was an IUT flight for one of these dudes. They were instructor under training. Um, so let me scroll down. Oh, here. Scott Fitzpatrick. CTF-1. So it's your fam, it's your tactics fam flight. Oh, was, so I'd already got my first NATOPS check out of it. Yeah, there. yeah, and it was uh, you. It was a sixteen thirty brief with an eighteen thirty launch. Uh, you flew with Scammy McNeely, 
and the pilot, oh yeah, the pilots were Mallory and McNally. Sunset was eighteen thirteen. Oh yeah, so I remember flew, Mr. Mi- so you flew in the dark. Well, CTF one, so yep. it was radar fam, mad fam, all that stuff. Um, Those are better to do at night because uh, you don't have to have the radar hood. The, the the instructors had like a little. They put they modified them. They put like a little hole in there with a little Velcro thing so they could peek in the radar to see what you're. You know, okay, yeah, that's right. So um, so at the bottom stuff's coming back to me. Yeah. <laughs> So at the bottom of every HSL-31 flight schedule was an eight-tops corner for a pilot, for the air crew, some course rules, emergency, oh, shit. Pr- emergency procedures. Let's see, I, so, let's see if I can answer any of these. So the eight-tops corner for the pilots was the OTPI signal light will glow when, and it's a fill-in-the-blank. You're on top of the buoy or you got a reliable signal. Okay. Air crew tops to manually close the overhead fuel shutoff valves. You move the red lever to the left or right while facing aft. Run that by me again. <laughs> to manually close the overhead fuel shutoff valves, you move the red lever to the left or right while facing aft. I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> Oh, that's that thing in the tunnel. No, it's overhead. Right? No. Okay. Overhead where? I don't even... Think about it. That's the thing in the tunnel, though. No, no. Think about it. Remember uh, underneath the soundproofing, uh, above where we sat, was was a place where you adjust the fuel, right? If you had to put JP4... Oh, I remember the fuel topping, the screws. I remember that. Yes. But next were manual shutoff valves. Oh, see, I don't even remember that shit. Okay, um, cool. I'm, I'm glad sure, you remembered it. I'm pretty sure the so answer to the left. I guess I just failed my uh, I failed my NATOPS check. Could you even find them, right? <laughs> you know what? I always had a hard time yeah, finding oh underneath God. that that soundproofing was the second uh, gunner's belt hook. I could never find. Yeah, it. that soundproofing was a real pain in the ass because if you had a freaking oil leak, that that gorilla snot glue didn't work, oh. and I I've literally had that. That's freaking soundproofing falling down all over me. So the course rules, weather minima for D-West operations within the North Island Control Zone is, I have no idea. Hell if I know. Probably for D-West operations? Probably basic. I'm thinking three miles, like yeah. basic VFR, because you might still be in controlled airspace out there. I don't know. Uh, the emergency procedures, immediate landing and ditching checklist. Uh, harness gear stores lights IFF made a restart for the pilots and for us it was uh, seat aft harness lock remove radar hood jettison window yep that's it that's all we got see I remember shit like that can well, you believe I remember the pilots I don't know why you remember harness the pilots stores stuff. lights IFF made a restart because by OIC that I had Lieutenant Commander Gibbs on my, my second deployment every time we did a practice auto he would say he would say it out loud ah okay so it got. It was funny. I said, "Here, let me do it, sir," <laughs> and I would do it. Yeah, that's and they're funny. up there. They're laughing. Yeah, that's you know. awesome. Yep. Okay, run the. Okay, we're in an auto, and then harness gear stores lights. AF ID harness door. Let's see. Harness door gear stores lights. IFF made a restart. Anyhow, the silly stuff that uh, we did to stay entertained after like the twenty fifth freaking auto rotation. So guess who? Signed this. Guess who signed this? The uh, 
flight schedule. Uh, the, uh, the OPSO or the uh, skipper? Well, the OPSO did submit it. His signature is a submitter, but it was approved uh, by Commander Archambo. It was. It was indeed signed by H.E. Yep. Archambo. I liked him. He I was loved, a really cool I, dude. He was an awesome dude. All right, so I'll send this to you. Yep. I'll send yeah. this to you. That's uh, I had I, I at one point managed to hang, find my flight schedule for the last flight I appeared on at HSL 33, but I misplaced it. But I had them the both. The only one I have that I saved is I've got an actual copy of the schedule of when I crashed in the H60. <laughs> well, yeah. That's worth hanging on to. That, yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, so do, you, do you want me to list the flights that make up the syllabus? Sure, you can do that. And I, I and then... Uh, so you know if if uh, if uh, you want to uh, expound, since I kind of I think I did a pretty good job talking about the pre-flight. And yes. The, you know the process. Yes. Yes. Um, you talk about you think it might be a good time good time to take a natural break and pick it up next week, kind of a thing. Is that where you're? Is that where you're kind of leaning? No, no, no. Oh, I was okay. just saying that like you could you could do that. You know, like what we have to do to get up to the first NATOPS check. You know, the the flights. Okay. So. Remember I said the course is 16 weeks, right? So the 16 weeks weeks here are mapped out. Weeks one through three, you have to get through uh, a couple units of training and then take a test um, before you start on unit two, which is um, which gets you ready for your first fan flight. So unit two, Week four, day one, is unit two. Introduction lamps, nate tops, flight gear items, how to inspect a life raft, safety belt, SAR equipment, mm-hmm. general brief, visual contact reporting, visual search, a load sheet, vid map, yellow sheets, parts A and D, aircraft status part A, equipment readiness, exterior and interior pre-flights, ICS and radio control, emergency exit operations, engine fire, uh, cabin electrical fire, total electrical failure, ICS failure, which you talked about already. Immediate ditch, planned ditch, bailout, hung droop stops. Manual diverter. Engine topping. We just talked about that too. Emergency ground secure. Before starting engines checklist. Starting rotors checklist. Taxing post-launch checklist. Taxing uh, post-start ICS transmissions. What you say, right? AYK2 post-start checklist. Before landing checklist, sensor operators. No post- unusual fumes, leaks, or vibrations. <laughs> Thank you. Common, yeah, I'll never forget that. <laughs> common communication terms. All all the stuff you had to learn and take a test on, right? And it mm-hmm. says, uh, upon grading the test, see your class and leader or monitor assigned on the flight schedule for debrief. And once you finish all this stuff, then you get to go and get be put on the flight schedule on day four. So they give you three days, or actually they give you essentially three and a half weeks to do two units, whatever unit one is, because that's not listed here. Unit two of all the tasks I just read, take a test on it, homework on it, and once you pass that, then they schedule you for your flight, which is supposed to be week four, day four. I was just going to ask you, Mike, I don't recall anybody washing out of hsl 31 when we were there do you no maybe somebody did i just don't re- I, I don't think anybody watched i don't out. remember 
anybody washing out. And I and and I think it's because at that point, all the crap you've gone through already, this stuff is easy. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. You you know you're not you're putting together all the stuff you've been talking about. Right, you're applying it to right. an airplane, and, and everybody's pretty motivated too. So yeah, yeah, because what's more motivating to to walk out to the flight line, and you know, hop in and go fly, right? You want to exactly. keep you want to exactly. keep doing after it, you've right? Just been yeah, exactly. After you just down at the training building and you're hearing all those things snarling down there at the end of the flight <laughs> line, you're kind of chomping at the bit to go out and do it. At least I was anyway. Yeah, same here. No, I was ready to go. So that to me, that's a testament, right? Because I know, I know, I checked in like October first or something. Mm-hmm. Actually, I can. I know. Yeah, I, and I, I was there literally like a, like about four weeks ahead of you. I, I think is what it well, was. Well, I know October eighteenth is a Tuesday, right? I just verified that. So I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to go back in time on the calendar, because I'm anal like that. Uh, oh, to see how long it was before when you checked in to when your first yep. flight was. Yep. So, uh, I checked in on October third was a Monday, right? Because the last day of Common Core is September thirtieth, a Friday, first, second, the third Monday. Checked in HSL thirty one. One, two and a half weeks, not even two and a half weeks, two full weeks. The eighteenth, I was ready for my first flight. So that tells you how motivated I was. Built into the schedule. Yeah. yeah. Built in the schedule is. 15, 16, 17 days, 18 days before you fly. And I did it. I, in, and I had already gone, I obviously had gone through the full utility syllabus by that time. Yeah, yeah. Because what we haven't mentioned really is this is this is self-paced. You go into the ISD, yep. you check out your lesson. Or they had they had they had different technical terms here. They have they have a lesson, a workbook, a videotape, a slides, you know, uh film strips, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then they had a few things that were actually proctored, like the tests. Yes. And I think you had like uh, there was some classroom stuff too that they uh, that they did, but that was fairly limited. Um, okay, I don't yeah. remember ever really doing any like lecture type stuff. Do you? No, no, not at all. So workbook segments. I'm yeah, wondering. Just... I'm wondering if the reason that my my handbook here starts with week four. Is because week one through three is all stuff that was in here I pulled out and had to turn in. Because you have, yeah, work, you have yeah, workbook segments, learning stuff, tape slide segments, videotape segments, random access slide segments. Remember that I had to hook up a little crazy controller thing? Yeah. Uh, yep. And you check it out, do it, take a test, turn it in, and it would go into your book. And then once you started checking stuff off, then you could start flying. So yeah, I... I now this book is a lot of pages. It's going to take a while for me to scan it, get it to you. But I was going to say that, uh, like the first CRW flight, we did some warm-up hoisting at the pad before we went over water. But I could be mistaken about that. Um, that because it was kind of a big evolution right. to do the jumps, right? Yeah, I had to have the boat out there with a corpsman in it, with an instructor, with a radio to communicate with the airplane. We did it in South Bay in San Diego. If you're familiar with uh, San Diego Bay, there's an area just south of the Coronado San Diego Bay Bridge. Pretty just a just bit to south the of the south of the amphibious space. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's where we did our, our our work at, and the objective here is to teach you 
how to hoist a live body out of the water after deploying a live body into the water. So, you know, the, you know, rescue swimmer school kind of taught us like, you know, you're, you're, the, the, you're the, the body the business yeah. end of the rescue swimmer <laughs> stuff. Now you're kind of like doing everything, you know, you're not only are you going to jump out of the water, you're also going to be hoisting your buddies, which I think was a good way of doing it. Um, so, and it was very challenging later on when I did it as an instructor too, because really you kind of had to be over the shoulder of the, the young lad doing that to make sure he wasn't going to do anything stupid, like get his hands jammed up in the, cause I had to yank a kid's hand off the, the uh, cable cause he was going to pinch his hand off. Yeesh. And that was something I remember them cautioning us about. Um, cause there's a micro switch up there that would stop the hoist. But if your hand isn't near the micro switch, you're going to get your hand crushed <laughs> by, th yes. by 3000 PSI. Yeah. It'll stop when it hits the switch. If your fingers in between, oh, there, yeah, but, yeah, then your finger becomes paper. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you had to be, you had to kind of watch what the, 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 the lads were doing, uh, with that. So, you know, the, the, uh, this is the first time since rescue swimmer school, that will actually hoist a live body. So, you know, when it's your turn to jump, that's the easy part. All you got to do is just do uh, jump in the water, swim over to one of the, we would jump in threes. And one, the, the first pair that would jump, they'd swim together and they'd come up the hoist together and the third guy come up by himself. Because um, there was usually... Uh, I don't remember this at all. <laughs> I don't, re oh, okay. I don't remember I do. doing yeah, jumps at 31. Yeah, this this I do remember because again I think I want to say I was with Dave Haddock again because we kind of like and maybe and I think it was Bill Martini. Yeah, we were kind of together for this whole. They were probably in your you know, class phase of training. They were probably your class because yeah, my well, they were they were in my class. Yeah, because because my, my class was was Poston Miller and Lopez. Yeah, and, we, oh, and it was me too. and Bill maybe, Martini and maybe John Dave Mercer Haddock too. and I forget. Scott Christensen hmm. was Scott Christensen with you. I don't. I don't remember. I don't think so. I think he might have been behind us. Do you remember Lor another guy? His first uh -huh. name was Lauren. Lauren. Um... I don't remember his name. Lauren. Crap. Yeah. Because because you and Boomer and Mike Ampong were in a class together, right? No, or Boomer no, and Ampong were behind later. me. They oh, were not. Right. They were not. They were not. Boomer was in my. They were one of the last HC one classes. Boomer was in my rescue swimmer class. Was in my rescue swimmer class. Ampong was not. Okay. So I want to see Mike okay. might have so taken Mike... some leave somewhere to, f because yeah. he and Amp. Oh my gosh, thirty-five year old memories. Mike was not. He was not yeah. in my rag class. He was behind me in rag. Because my rag yeah. class was was Russ Miller, George Poston, Lopez. I want. I thought Mercer was too, right. but I think Mercer was behind. Mercer might have been with Boomer and Ampon. Yeah. Because yeah, when I so when, when I when I finished HSL thirty one, and went to HSL thirty three, I didn't go with Boomer and Ampon. They Carl, came behind me. Carl Brown was in my class too. Okay. Because he he was uh, also in my Common Core. I've, he went. I was in. His, he were in rescue swimmer together, school together, Sear and Comicore, and then HSL thirty one. 
and went to HSL 37 in the same bunch that went over there. Um, so yeah, so you're you're now you're you're and you practice doing like the lost ICS signals. I, I remember that doing that. Stuff. I remember doing, but see, I remember doing that and, with like a smoke in the water. I remember practicing SAR and Doppler approaches with a smoke yeah. in the water, and it was all yeah. But I, that might have been fleet. I time. remember doing that too. That might have been not actually because they didn't like you putting the host hoist out if you really didn't need to. Because it, remember, whenever yeah, whenever exactly, you use the hoist, you got a freshwater water. Yeah, they'd have to hook hook the airplane up to a hydraulic jenny to apply uh, hydraulic power to the hoist and run the whole thing out and then run it back. Or you had through. to keep turning before you shut down, and, yeah. and uh, they came out with a bucket that too and ran and it through a bucket of freshwater. Yes. All yeah. off, and then they had the eighty one three oh nine on a rag, and then you brought it up um, and did that too, because you're always checking um when you're inspecting the cable after that evolution to look for any broken strands a, bro- a broken strand and that hoist cable was done down down that was a that was a because we used to if you remember uh mike before we went out and did sar jumps they we ran the hoist out all the way too because we were the ones that are out there holding it off the ground yeah and somebody held on to the hook because the instructor would be running the hoist Walk it out all the way out, and then you ran it all the way back in, and he's making sure there's no strands broken on the cable, um, as the for the hoist check before live hoisting. I remember doing that too. Um, even in the HS community, I did that a few times when I um, was the dry guy for you know when we had a group of guys in the shop that had to go do jumps. The dry guy. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I had I was within. You know, we only not every. Everybody jumped at the same time in an HS squad, and you're kind of broken up. So, you know, but we'd have like six or seven guys doing it. That was a long freaking evolution, man. And by the time you got done, one airplane you were soaked from the waist down. And this is in the SH-60F. One airplane? The HH-60. Yep. Well, we could go out with the HH, and without any seats in it, the whole thing's wide open. So you could put like a half a dozen guys okay. back there, plus a hoist operator. And a lot of times we'd have two crewmen, you know, as dry, and uh, so you could take turns or, you know, it was a little different in the HS world because normally you flew with two guys, right? Yep, yep. Um, yeah, so uh, then you did, uh, I want to say you did maybe some more book work, but it was mostly like getting ready for your open book and closed book natops so, and your natops so yeah the, the the first the first utility phase was basically three parts it was the fam hook and hoist a hyfer if you've ever did one but no one i didn't do a hyfer uh the overwater which is you know uh, they call it actually overwater and ordnance right which you know play with smokes right um yep yep and there was uh, uh two crw flights scheduled and then after your after your second CRW, then you could take your your uh, you took an open book and a closed book Nate tops. So uh, yeah, because Chief uh, Freitas, I think it was, or Valalonga, I forget, I think was the Nate tops guy. Because that's when you had to go up the stairs to that little control tower looking thing, and check out that open book Nate tops that you had five days to complete. And I forget how many questions it was, um, but you had to provide a reference, the page, paragraph, 
of where you found the answer, and and then you did a close book. All right, so and, <laughs> ouch. So listen to this uh, in the handbook when it talks about the open book exam. Turn in your open book, Natops Utility Examination today, even if you are not done. For those who think that this exam is not important enough to pass, just be ready to explain to the academic review board why. <laughs> this is only one of wow. two open book Natops exams for 78XX that you'll receive required be required to pass if you're to graduate from HL 31. For the 82XX, this is only one. This is the only one that is required of you. The next Natops exam will be closed book. Again, you must pass this to graduate from HL 31. And then. Uh-huh. Uh, right away you took the closed book one and if you didn't you have two hours yep. uh, and if you don't receive a passing grade you do another one right then you're, you're screwed and if, you, and, if, <laughs> and if you fail the second one you get an academic review board so I don't remember any. I don't remember anybody failing an ATOPS dude you had so no. much you had so much you, time you had to be a complete yeah and you yeah. had to be a total freaking rock fail the utility natops test i mean it, it was nothing yeah. hard on that test i mean we, we we i mean we're talking about flying and doing this stuff but the the course is laid out you had book learning to do and book learning tests that you had to pass before they let you go do it in the airplane so you had to demonstrate yep. some knowledge right. of it before they let you climb in the airplane to try it out so yeah and i mean I mean, we we briefly talked about the aircrew student lounge, but I say I'd spend about equal amount of time goofing off in there as I did in the IST study. Oh something. yeah, I, I I did this. I was no different than uh, than you in that regard. Or uh, you know, we had a place uh, outside the building between our, the training building and our Framp hangar that uh, was like a Navy exchange uh, snack, snack bar. Snack bar. <laughs> trailer yep, thing yep. we call it we call it grannies because there was like a little old lady yes. in there working most of the time i fly you by and the big thing was uh <laughs> was nachos yeah i remember the nachos the, the cheap kind like you yep. get at a ballpark yep yep <laughs> uh we were like their main customer i think well i think a lot of the Framp people went over there but i know uh uh some people used to do the you fly i'll buy kind of thing yeah, yeah. where I, I want a pepsi they pay for your nachos yeah, yeah. I'll buy your nachos. Yep. You go buy me some, okay? Or I'll, or exactly. I'll yeah, buy your was, Pepsi. That's or... kind of a popular. They also had bagels. I remember getting bagels but, with cream cheese in the morning there. The funny thing is, right right down the street, the other direction was a full blown next, um, you know, uh, restaurant if you want to call it that. Yeah, but that the sand that was, um, sand, then, that was the sand crabs using that. That was down by the Narf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I used to go there when I was an instructor. I never, I don't think I ever went in there when I was a student, but I definitely ate there when I was an instructor on occasion. And then we had the other one across the street from the Double Dome hangar, so there was another one there. There was, there was plenty of places to go eat uh, if you didn't want to go yeah, to the chow hall, the chow pretty, hall yeah. pretty close by. And if you wanted to go to the uh, down where the barber shop was, there was, an, there was another one there. So there was plenty of places to go eat. Yeah. Um, hell, there was one on the pier down. The pier, oh, all the way down by J Pier. Yeah, by the fat by the boathouse. There was another snack bar down there too. Yeah. 
like like it was like one of those another one of those trailer kind of places. Dude, I went I went I went back onto North Island for the first time in probably 10, 10 12 years uh for the uh-huh. for the uh, commissioning of HSM 35. They invited all the old school lamp dudes. And uh where that boathouse is was a was they turned that into a carrier pier. Yeah, they completely redid it because um, they built a um, what, what do they call it um, the 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 ship intermediate maintenance activity for a nuclear carrier because they ha- they home ported three nuclear carriers there and that was all completed in the late nineties. So that they they built that additional area dredge and everything, so they could home port yeah. three Nimitz class carriers. Well, that's all we got now, right? That's all we yeah. have is Nimitz yep. class carriers and, get and one Ford. Ford. Class. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I I want to I want to point out that okay, so we've we've talked through the utility phase, and I I think before we jump into the tactics phase or the the you know submarine looking phase, we should probably break it here. Yep, I was I was, the, I was I was thinking the same thing. Because we're an hour and a half in, or actually a little longer, and uh, yeah, so I think it's a I think it's a good breaking point for us. And you know, we haven't been exactly yep. we haven't been exactly uh, you know ticking off straight down the list. We've been kind of scatterbrained here and there, filling in memories and whatnot. But you know, yeah, I think you have well, a you good. Gotta, you got to remember, I got a few cobwebs here. Yeah, well, that, uh, both of us do. Do. <laughs> But I'm just saying for the listener's sake, you have a good sense of what the student life is to start with. And, you know, the the introduction to the airplane that Scott made for you is very similar to the introduction to the airplane we got anyway. So you you have a sense of how things started um, and got rolling for for the aircrew training portion of. uh, it's a very interesting history, actually, of, of how we wound up with the Lamps Mark III because the Lamps Mark II was a stillborn project that, uh, again, funding kind of stifled that from barely, not even hardly getting off the drawing board. Yeah. You, and you, I think as technology started to pro- progress, they they started bringing the, you know, they looked at the, the H-60 and they're like, hmm. And uh, uh, then I think the Navy actually got what they really wanted. You know, every time you say the word funding, I think of the movie right, the right stuff. I just, yeah. I just watch it yep, again. That's right. Yeah, that line. <laughs> you know, what makes these rockets go up. No bucks, no buck, Rogers. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that line. I, I just, I just watch it again to you know, to honor uh, General Yeager's passing. I watch the right stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I've been listening to an audio book. Uh, I guess we can talk about this offline, but uh, it was good to, um, you know, catch up. We had a couple week uh, break there, and uh, and this was kind of the part I I I thought was going to be the most interesting is uh, reminiscing about uh, going through the fleet replacement squadron and actually doing what we had signed up to do and. It's a it's a pretty long uh, training pipeline. Sure, there's a lot of there's some dead time in there, but yeah, uh, it, it takes a while to get a guy you know off the street. You know, shows up at boot camp and 
and get them out to the fleet. And, and really, even getting out to the fleet, you still got another probably six to nine months before, you know, you're fully, Effective. you know, mission ready to go out and do the job. There's a lot of things that you need to learn and get experience on. Um, there, and what amazes me is. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you. I was just going to say what amazes me is one of the things that I, I can't remember who said it exactly. Um, that, but really struck me as like, you know, it's a possibility for you as a 18, 19, 20 year old to make a call that an admiral is going to make a decision to turn a whole battle group on. So you better start taking this shit serious. Something along those lines. Yeah, that's uh and it's true. Yeah, it's it is. true. Yeah. It really is true. Especially if you're in the especially if you're in the localization phase, you know, the I've I've got them I've got them locked down, right? You know, you've got yep. three three mads in a row. You can you you know, your smokes are marking his path in the water and you know, you, you have enough of a of a solution to drop a tarp on his ass. You're right. The the dude with the yeah. stars on his shoulder is gonna decide you know, if that's actually going to happen and or not. I was, I was lucky enough to actually, you know, go out and localize to the attack criteria, you know, a, a Soviet submarine, you know, in the real, in the real world. So, uh, um, you know, I don't know too, how too many H H two guys that actually had that, um, fortune by coincidence. And by, I say that because anybody could have done what, we did it just i just happened to be the guy in the seat on that particular night when during this operation in the summer of 1985 where you know they wanted us to make a statement to the soviet union like hey we're right here we're gonna we'll be we're in the middle we can drop a torpedo on your ass anytime we want yeah and, and so we it'd had, be interesting to and we had ASW to mull down. that over yeah yeah i was i was just gonna make the comment that I was actually surprised that, considering how long the pipeline is, that it didn't require an extended enlistment to to join us to become an AW, because there was lots of stuff that had long training pipelines. You know, the nuclear power program, for example, required a six year commitment. That's six years, right? Yeah, six year commitment, and and because of two years, right? You have two years of school, then you have four years of fleet time, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, well, shoot, uh, I joined. You know, I left. November of 82, I hit my fleet squadron in April of 84. So that's 18 months. I didn't make my first mm-hmm. deployment until February of 85. That's two and a half years yeah, I did it bef- up pretty- before I, uh, yeah. you know, actually did the job I said. And I only made it, I only did it once. I did it once, did my time, and I was out. And, you know, that's... I, I got to the squadron in, eight, in March, and I, I was... Uh, I was on a debt by by uh, by May. Wow. Uh, we'll have to talk about that when when we get to hitting the fleet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because yep, that'll be interesting to compare the notes there. Yep. But so, all right, we'll we'll wrap up here, uh, the end of utility phase at HSL thirty one. Uh, we'll wrap up with our normal wrap up of begging for emails. No, not begging. Ask asking for emails. Talk to us. Let us know. Reach out and tell us what you think. Are you enjoying it? Do we talk too much? Do we talk not enough? Any sort of feedback is appreciated. 
Um, the email addresses are mike at navalair.net or scott at navalair.net. You can write to both of us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Absolutely. So, and that that's all, you know, anybody even with an interest that, uh, in naval history, you don't necessarily have to be a veteran or uh, even associated with the uh, H2 community. Any Anything, uh, you know, naval aviation, We Mike and I both have a pretty broad range of uh, background, and um, we would definitely like to hear from um, people that are just interested in naval history as well. Yes. Yes. As it pertains to aviation. Absolutely. So with that, we'll give our standard closing to admonish you to stay safe and God bless.